In his famous book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis writes about a boy named Eustace Scrub who almost deserved his name. Lewis informs us that the reason why Eustace was so insufferable was due to him never reading the right stories. He didn't know how to recognize dragons, but he knew lots of random facts and bureaucratic information. Eustace served as a reminder to us that stories are important, and choosing the right stories is crucial to a person's development. In fact, storytelling is so powerful that the only perfect man to ever walk the earth thought to speak in parables when answering life's biggest questions. So on this episode of Forge and Anvil, we will be joined by author Faith Moore to explore the importance of storytelling, as well as unpack some of the fictional works that have greatly impacted the church and the culture. Welcome to Forge and Anvil, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations about culture, theology, and politics to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I am a father, a husband, and a follower of Christ. I am joined by my regular co-host, Michael Aper. Michael, go ahead and say hi. Howdy, friends. As always, I'm a student of scripture, a fearer of God, and I'd love to see the righteousness of God restored to the people of God. Awesome. Well, welcome back from a little bit of a hiatus, Michael. We're glad to have yeah. you. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we are joined by our guest, Faith Moore. So Faith, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am a mom who wrote a book. <laughs> I am a, I'm a stay-at-home mom to two kids. I have an almost three-year-old and an almost nine-year-old. And I most recently am a novelist. I have written a book called Christmas Carol, um, which is a modern retelling of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. We can get into that probably more later, but I also, um, I wear several hats. In addition to my mom hat and my novelist hat, I also wear um, my freelance writing hat. You can find my sort of nonfiction writing uh, across, splashed across the internet if you look for it. I, I write on uh, mostly sort of culture, a lot about Disney and Disney princesses. Um, and I, my other hat is editor. I edit people's writing and I, I have my own editing practice or editing business and I love to do that. So those are all of the varied things about me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, welcome, Faith. We're really glad to have you. Before we get started, everyone who is within my the sound of my voice, uh, be sure to check out last week's episode. We actually did a awesome episode with uh, Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown Podcast, all about uh, whether or not libertarianism and Christianity are compatible. It was definitely a thought-compelling conversation, so be sure to join in on that one if you haven't already. Be sure to like and share this video to help boost us in the algorithms because unfortunately we are at their mercy. Follow us on Twitter at Forge and A for additional content updates on the show. And of course, share this video and repost the stream because we are live on X, YouTube, and Rumble. Be sure to jump over to YouTube or Rumble if you actually want to be a part of the chat portion and actually be a part of the conversation. Uh, we really appreciate it. Either way, though, uh, Faith, I actually wanted to first just um, let you know kind of how I discovered you. So I was actually in the middle of doing some writing, and I was looking up some, uh, I'm trying to remember which which exactly my question was. I think it had to do with the proper usage of commas because I was just having a, a certain uh, certain article that I was writing and it, it seemed like I was just wildly abusing the use of my commas. So I actually <laughs> no. looked up 
how to properly uh, use commas in writing. And I discovered this uh, YouTube channel um, by the name of Faith Moore and uh, saw one of your videos on how to properly use grammar, which was helpful for a Neanderthal like me. So first of all, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, but then amazing. it was just, Can I just say that is amazing yeah. that, that my video came up when you did that. I, that makes me so happy. So yay. I'm glad that well, happened. It's funny because then I, I go ahead and I subscribe to your channel and then, and then months later, I later find out that you are uh, related to Andrew Clavin, which is hilarious because, of course, um, I've known about his work for a long time. And, and then beyond that, I see that you end up uh, releasing a book with the Daily Wire. So I thought, all right, well, now I've got to contact her and have her on the show. So that's actually uh, the roundabout story of how I initially came to discover you on your corner of the Internet. So and here we are. So Thomas, again, very you. powerful tool. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of powerful, I wanted to talk about why it is important that we read the right stories. So Faith, I'll go ahead and turn that question over to you first, just to kind of start our conversation off. Yeah, I think that stories, stories are so important and also so kind of misunderstood, I think, in today's culture. People don't really know so much anymore what to do with a novel for example, and people much more kind of want to digest a sort of like a, a sort of manifesto or a fact or an article about something. And, and they want a message and they want, you know, they don't understand why, why should we read 300 pages about these made up people living in this made up world? You know, what's the point of that? I want real stuff. I want real life. Why, why should I care about something that's just completely made up? And I think that it, that sort of totally misses the point of what a story is. Because when you think about, I mean, obviously, as, as you said at the top of the episode, we, we know that stories are important because Jesus spoke in stories. So anybody who's kind of saying like, we let's just get rid of, of fiction or let's just get rid of kind of allegory or metaphor or any of these things because we don't understand that and it's, it's not real. So we should just stick to the facts. Anybody who says that is obviously mistaken. And that's how we know right? Because it's right there in the Bible. This is the way that it makes the most sense to communicate to each other. Okay. So I think what we're missing is, you know, when you really want someone to agree with you, probably like the worst thing you can do is say like, you're completely wrong. This is what, I, you know, this is what is true. And, you know, here's my message, like, you know, all, all women should stay home with their babies or, or whatever it is that you're trying to say. I think that's probably the best way to get someone to like hate you and, and never, ever agree with you. Um, and I don't even think that a story, my big thing is that stories shouldn't have overt messages. I think that when we try to tell stories in order to co convey an overt message, for example, women should stay home with their babies, we fail because we're not creating real worlds. The whole importance of stories, to answer your question, the importance of stories to me is that they are a sort of microcosm of real life. They, they give you a kind of crystallized version of truth, the truth of of hum like living a human life and they place within it the right character if it's done right they place within it the right characters the right situation to help you experience something 
as opposed to kind of like logically think through something. And we need that because we're humans and we we relate to each other on on an emotional or a spiritual level. And so we need stories for that reason. And they help us to work things out in ways that nothing else can. And if we forget that, I think we're kind of doomed. Yeah, that's that's so true and important. And it touches on, <clears throat> for me, the importance of having the right story is that stories, when done well, do not overtly implement virtue. They allude to virtue by nature of the characters that they present in realistic scenarios. And I think another aspect of this that I want to talk about a little bit is the difference between stories in the media that we tend to consume as opposed to literature specifically. <clears throat> Pardon me. But in literature, the main difference, because you could say like, okay, well, I didn't read the book, but I watched the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, then you, you understood the plot, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But what you miss and, and what is provided by a, an omniscient third person narration is the thoughts and motivations behind the protagonists or the surrounding characters. So the beauty of, say, we could take the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's mm -hmm. work in Lord of the Rings. Many people avoid reading that because he builds a world that is so extensive and detailed that it's daunting to, uh, I would say, a adequately literate person in our society. And what is considered adequate is shamefully low in comparison to antiquity and but what tolkien does is he he paints this image of detail and and motivations behind each of the characters and it educates the decisions that those characters make when we watch a marvel a marvel film pardon me we see characters making decisions but we are only given a glimpse of why those decisions are made based on the conversations that they have and the situations that they are in so we can infer their motives but those not are not always explicit and they are not always as relatable because we don't have that view of the omniscient storyteller i think that's the beauty of literature that really allows a story to be told in a meaningful way that can relate to the individual in the way that we make decisions that we think through problems and create solutions of those problems and the what makes the story right i think is the method with which we introduce methods of problem solving and decision making yeah i mean it's interesting what you're saying i think it's true that literature is kind of the only storytelling medium that we have where we do get to kind of really live inside of the inner workings of a character like to really kind of be inside of the the mental space of each character, either because it's a first person narration or because as you say, it's third person omniscient and therefore we can kind of be inside of each person's head. And that's, you know, in a movie that's not true, you might, they might tell you stuff, but they're not, you're not really kind of in there with them. I mean, I think I agree that a lot of these 
works of the past, like Tolkien, but even like further back, like, like Dickens or, you know, like, you know, Shakespeare or all of this, the kind of like classics that we want to hang on to that are so important and that are being kind of thrown away now in, in universities, et cetera. I think that they are incredibly daunting to the modern reader, not because everybody is, oh, everyone's so illiterate or, or whatever, but because, you know, the language, we don't speak like that anymore. We don't write like that anymore. And we shouldn't because we're in a different time. But it can be really hard to kind of open a book and have all of these, like, you know, these words that you don't understand or this these sentence constructions. And so I, I think that movies are good for that. Like, as somebody that really struggled as a kid with reading and and grew up in a family who where everyone was very intellectual but me and i was always kind of being offered like you're going to love this book like this you know david copperfield or something you're going to love this and then i would pick it up and be like i don't understand this i, I don't get it. i don't i don't know even what it's saying like i know each word <laughs> but i don't understand what they're how it's coming together for me like watching a movie of a book that I then was going to read was really, really helpful because of what you just said, because now I know the plot. I don't know anything else, <laughs> but yeah. I understand like the beats of the plot. And so now I can go back and kind of be like, okay, this is that part <laughs> where this happened. And so I think we need to not be like literature absolutists because i think we're all the people are going to just fall away you know that people that really are wanting to to do this but can't <laughs> you know like it's a struggle and so i think there are things in modern culture that are really annoying like marvel marvel movies like that everything is marvel now like that's really annoying and it's easy to just be like Ugh, like movies, go away. Everybody just read a book, you know, go away and read a book. But I think it's more that we need to kind of use the media that we have to kind of help people get back into to books. Because I agree, like books are dying and they shouldn't be because they're they are unique in all of the ways that you described. And and it's really the only way, you know, as a novelist, I feel like I'm doing my job right when I am essentially like my imagination is I'm like sending it out into your imagination, right? And like you, you might, and, and we're communicating that way. And even when I'm gone, and even, you know, if I'm not, if you don't get to talk to me on a podcast, like we are communicating. And that's what literature does. And it, it speaks to us across time and across space and all of these things in a way that nothing else does. And so we need to hold on to it. But we need to use all the tools at our disposal, I think. I agree with you. Absolutely. And I, I hope I want to be clear that I'm not promoting literature at the expense of right. other forms of, no. of right. entertainment, yeah. but just I think we undervalue literature in our culture. And that's why yeah. I want to speak to the value of those things, because you're right. And, and literature, written stories and novels are a reflection of an oral tradition that came long before pen and paper were able to document these things. And those same reasons that that literature should be promoted are the the benefit the benefits of of oral tradition as well. I mean, even in we talk about scripture, much and most of the Old Testament was an oral tradition, and the stories that were passed down of the covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. 
these covenants are are major story arcs that we can hold to as people of faith and that's what makes them memorable as well i mean aside from an orthodox jew most people are not remembering the specific laws of deuteronomy right but almost everyone (laughs) remembers the exodus narrative if they were introduced to that at some point yeah no i think i think that's absolutely true um and yeah it's the stories that's that stay with us that are so powerful and and it's the kind of like i mean outside now outside the realm of the bible but it's like it's the kind of like people telling you what to think and what to do that's what we forget we forget because we close we close our mind to those things because we don't want to hear those things it's the stories that we hold on to which is precisely why i believe jesus speaks in parables and he teaches in parables because they are memorable right if he were to deliver a moral law as had already been done in sinai what he's doing i mean he says it himself and oh we lost lost faith keep going though michael (laughs) yeah we we saw it in uh, matthew chapter 5 when jesus says i have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it and he explains that he's not there to give you a different set list of moral values he's communicating those moral values using stories that are approachable that are accessible he teaches in a way that is relatable most of the parables have an agricultural display because the people that he's speaking to had an agricultural lifestyle and certainly that could be applied in different ways and we we see that now preachers that have influenced the world in one way or another usually use uh, they use stories that are relatable to their audiences to communicate the values that are already being told to us through scripture it's not because they're presenting lord willing it's not because they're presenting a scripture or a a set list of values that is alternate to scripture, but they are finding modern ways to communicate those things through valuable stories, whether it's personal anecdotes, whether it's allegory, whether it's metaphor, uh, or even simile that is used in these ways to help communicate. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing in much of, I mean, I think of uh, Matthew chapter 13 is just a rich narrative where he's saying the kingdom of heaven's like this and like this and like this and if he were to describe the kingdom of heaven as it is then we get really confused and lost just like we do in the book of ezekiel or daniel or revelation when these men who are given visions are trying to describe things that are so abstract that they're not able to do so effectively as effectively as we might hope for as the audience But Jesus instead says, no, the kingdom of heaven is like seed that's being thrown on the soil. Some of it lands on the rock. Some of it lands on the, you know, the, the sandy path. Some of it lands on good soil. Some of it lands in thorns. And this is what happens to each of those different soils. And the soils are representative of you and how you respond to the seed, which is the news and the word of the kingdom of heaven. So he takes this abstract concept and makes it so much more approachable by using an agricultural parallel that is approachable and and accessible to the audience that he's speaking to. 
yeah, I totally agree with this. And it's making me think, so I write a lot about fairy tales and my book before this one was nonfiction book about, it was about Disney princesses, but it was about fairy tales because that's what all those movies were based on. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a similar idea to what you're talking about in the sense that these, these were oral tales that were passed down from mother to child and they were allegories. They have all these things in them that we know about, like the woods and the wolf and the, you know, fairy godmother and the love at first sight and all these things. And, and those are things that people today want to take literally. They want to say like, oh, this horrible story about this like prince that kisses a dead lady or, <laughs> or whatever, you know, how, like, why is, this, why are we promoting necrophilia to our children? And, yeah. um, right. And they don't understand that it's a metaphor. It's an allegory for something else. And I think that generally this is kind of the problem in our, in our culture right now when it comes to stories is that we don't understand metaphor anymore. We don't understand, like, you know, when you're saying, Jesus is saying, oh, well, the kingdom of heaven is like this or like that. People today are like, oh, okay, so the kingdom of heaven is a seed. Like, you know, like I'm going to get to heaven and be in a seed. A very you know, wooden translation of the text. <laughs> What's that? A very wooden translation of the text. Exactly. We, we've forgotten. We've yeah. forgotten how to, to read and understand that kind of a narrative. And I think all, all fiction, all stories like even sort of modern novels hold within them some level of allegory or metaphor or, you know, symbolism or something like that, because they're not, they're not real life. Like if you're just narrating real life, that's a boring story. Like that's, nobody wants to read that novel, you know, like, or you just sort of tell everything exactly as it would happen in real life. There's nothing there. They're crafted. And because they're crafted, they always have to be taken with some kind of interpretation. You know, you have to kind of like, be looking at okay what exactly is going on here what's what's the story behind the story and you know that's kind of what jesus was asking us to do is kind of like okay what you're describing something to me because this is how i can best understand it but it's not the thing itself and i think story is always like that in in mm. some way and that touches on uh it reminded me of a book by Joseph Campbell called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yes. Mm -hmm. Looks at archetypes going clear back to the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, Homer, we think of Arthur and the Round Table. Going clear up to what we, one of the more common recent ones is Star Wars. I mean, mm -hmm. we think of Star Wars. How relatable is Luke Skywalker? He lives in an other world with crazy zany aliens and is set into this weird magical system of something that's totally outside of our realm of understanding. And yet his hero archetype is recognizable and relatable because of the shared values that he has, the conflict that he overcomes, the friendships and relationships that he makes in order to overcome those conflicts and some relationships that he makes that causes more conflict. Those are the things that are relatable. And I think that's just a hint of what you're what you're touching on here. Yeah. And even the fact that that's true. And there's all kinds of, you know, stories that employ the the hero's journey that comes from that the hero with thousand faces. And, you know, and I think the fact that Luke Skywalker exists in this completely made up situation and completely made up universe, it it almost makes it more relatable because that that scenario that he's being placed in communicates certain things to us about our world. Like 
it it puts into stark reality you know good versus evil and you know the the you know all the things that are within us and without side of us in a way that like we can't see in real life you know in real life there is good and evil in real life there are heroes and villains there are you know there isn't the force, but like, you know, there are things that sort of compel us to do this or compel us to do that. Or like, you know, they all exist, but they are harder to see or kind of in interpret in the real world. So then putting this character into that scenario makes it so that we can sort of see those things that we can't see in real life. So it, it almost makes it more real if you're not talking about literally real, if you're just talking about kind of like humanly real. It makes it more real to do that kind of thing. So what are your thoughts on the kind of recent trend of, of uh, not really having black and white morality in a lot of our stories where nowadays the, the main character has, has, you know, some questionable morals. And then of course the villain has this uh, side that we're supposed to uh, have empathy towards. And uh, you know, it just, it's just a whole bunch of gray. There's not really black and white anymore. Kind of like the, um, the the George R. R. Martin as opposed to like the J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, you see the the kind of contrast in um the storytelling between showing morality in both uh, in both pages and on the screen. What's your take on that, Faith? Okay, so this may be slightly controversial, but I think that art should mirror life. I think that a a story, a novel should it, it's not it's kind of like what i was just saying about luke skywalker it's not that it needs to mirror life in the sense that it has to be hyper realistic like it can exist in a galaxy far far away but um but real life is very messy nobody is completely good or completely bad and i mean i guess some people are evil but i mean like you know generally <laughs> most people are complicated and the scenarios that we encounter in our lives are complicated and nuanced and you know we all have you know we have urges that we have to either entertain or deny we have you know desires and and you know interests that may not be what's best for us nobody is you know nobody but jesus is like perfectly good you know on on this earth and i think that stories need to reflect that and so stories that don't reflect that i think fall flat and they come off as sort of saccharine or you know sort of overly moralistic or like trying to kind of like this is my message and i want you to know it and like you know hit you over the head with it in that in that way and i'm not necessarily saying i mean you use like token token versus jrm i'm not saying that like Tolkien is doing this but i'm saying that you know i i didn't read all the game of thrones books or any of them, but I did watch the show and I actually loved the show because I think that even though there was nobody who was like, this is the good guy, you know, go into, you know, fight the dragon, win. Like there were people who ultimately were good in the world. And there were, and there were people, so there were people who were doing bad things. There are people who are doing good things for the wrong reasons. Life is like that. And I think if we forget that and we sort of try to make art as uh, there's a, there are two camps right there's art the way that the world really is and then there's art the way that we wish the world would be there's that sort of camp of people who think that's what art should be it should be it should reflect the world that we wish there was and then there's the uh, it should reflect the world that we have and i think if it reflects the world that we wish we had 
it's not relatable to anyone because that world is not, there is no way for, we, this is a fallen world. There is no world like that, you know, on here. <laughs> and so I think that, um, I'm, I don't like the idea that the villain is the hero. So I don't like the idea that like, oh, now, you know, we're making the Cruella movie and, you know, yeah. the reason that she was wanting to like kill and skin puppies is because she, she was, was misunderstood. misunderstood or we should all <laughs> want to kill puppies. Or I don't know. I didn't see that movie. But, you know, the, I don't like that <laughs> idea. I don't like where you take the yeah. villain and then you say, oh, actually, it was all fine. Like it was fine what they did and when they were the bad guy. But I do think that it's okay to have a little bit of kind of like gray in in a story, um, as long as you're not sort of promoting the idea that good is bad and bad is good. If that yeah. makes sense. I, I think I think I wouldn't call this a pushback because you'll probably agree with it. I think we're maybe just um, flush, fleshing this out a little bit more, but. Um, so it, it, to me, it's more of, of what you said towards the end of your answer there. It's the humanizing of the villains that's become yeah. very popular. And uh, that's very frustrating to me because it does seem like uh, in a lot of our modern remakes, um, the producers of the movies or the, the you know rewritten books or whatever the case we're referring to here, uh, they often try to minimize the impact of evil. And they try to really uh, act like there is no such clear cut thing as evil and of course we know that to be false um but beyond knowing that to be false i think to your point like i i agree with you that uh you know it should reflect real life i think what's hard is um on the flip side of humanizing the villain we also see villainizing the hero mm -hmm. um and it's to a point where uh, to use uh lord of the rings again as an analogy because because i know a lot of our audience is familiar with it and of course i'm very familiar with it but uh, uh you know we have uh, we have characters like Boromir, who is a flawed character. You know, he ultimately succumbs to the uh, to the temptation of the ring, and of course, he eventually tries to take it from Frodo. Um, but on the flip side, we also have characters like Aragorn, and of course, the the movies portray him a little bit differently. But in the book, uh, basically from the from the get go, Aragorn knows who he is. He already he already has accepted that he is the uh, he is the heir to the throne of Gondor and he is a righteous man. And the, the, the story constantly describes him as being this upright, righteous man. And um, I think, I think it's the fact that we oftentimes uh, in our desire to make it look like the real world, we also forget to show that even in the real world, there are people who can live righteously and have moral upright lives that we can look to as examples of a hero and someone that we can point our children towards as someone that, you know, we can say this is an example of a righteous, godly man, or this is an example of a righteous, godly woman. And, uh, it, you know, we, I, I think we just are missing a lot of that in these modern retellings and even the, the, the modern um, original works that we see being, uh, being pushed out today by the truckload. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, obviously I, there are good people in the world and people who do sort of unfailingly do the right thing at the cost of, I mean, I think what, what makes good stories in that sense is less kind of like, Oh, like they're always good. And it's so smiley and happy, but kind of what you were alluding to, like, 
I'm going to do the right thing in the face of like every crazy worldly thing that is happening. Like that, that's a good story, you know, like somebody who's just going to like stick to their guns no matter what, um, you know, is, is an interesting character. I think the, the problem is that villains are, are interesting. Villains are more interesting than heroes because just sort of from a storytelling perspective, because why are they like that? Like what happened? What's wrong with you? Like, wh why are you acting like that? You know, like we we think of ourselves, most of us, as as good. We're the good guy in the in our story, right? Like we think that even if we're not, like even if we're bad people, we we think we're the the good guy most of the time. And so then when we watch a villain, we're thinking like, what's up with that? You know? And so and whereas like the good guys, like yeah, they're doing the right thing. Okay, <laughs> good, good for them. The villain is like whoa, like what are their motivations? You know, what's happening? That's why sort of um, like lazy storytellers latch on to villains because you can you can kind of like pick them apart and like tease that out and what happened to them? You know, like, oh, well, they had this horrible past and like whatever. And what happens when you do that is you kind of turn them into a good guy because you, you explain away their evilness. You say, oh, well, the reason that they, you know, decided to kill all the puppies or whatever is because like they were abused as a child or what I've never seen the movie, but whatever. Like they were abused as a child and they, you know. And that's because we didn't fund enough, uh, enough public libraries and, and, and uh, exactly right. Social like, work programs. That's right, the reason right, right. why. They, they if if only they had gone to that library, yes, then uh, they would that, not have been you know, murderous. If, if only their true identity <laughs> had been realized or like appreciated, whatever it is, right? Like then, you know, then they would have been okay. So isn't that so sad? It's so sad for them. And now we're like, oh, we all want to kill puppies, you know? And so, I, so I think that that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem in terms of this thing that we're talking about, the like the sort of fairy tale villain backstory movies is the other problem is feminism because like they're all women um, and people who don't understand fairy tales don't understand why they're all women. And so then they think it's because like, oh, every all these horrible patriarchal men were telling these stories where like, you know, females are evil. And so we have to kind of re rehabilitate them and, you know, make it so that they were good or they were just sort of squashed down by the patriarchy or whatever. And now it's OK. Like Maleficent is kind of like that um, is another one of these movies. But of course, like the reason that they're women is because all of these princess stories are about girls growing up. And so there has to be a kind of mother figure or anti-mother figure that they break away from. So it actually has nothing to do with like women are bad. It has to do with what girls have to do in order to become women, which is that they have to kind of like usurp or surpass the mother figure. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with that. So that's kind of what I was saying before about like misreading stories. Like we don't understand how stories work anymore. And that makes us do a lot of really dumb things like say like, the, the villains are the, are the good guys, you know, because we don't get it. Um, so I think that's part of the problems too. The problem too is that we've like, we've forgotten how to read and understand stories. And so then we make these mistakes where we say like, oh, like the only reason the villain is a villain is because of this made up thing. And then we try to rehabilitate them when they don't deserve it. Yeah. I think another element to this conversation that I mean, we see in a lot of these sort of remake films is that we've already got pre-established villains and heroes and that sometimes inhibits our ability to have creative liberties in experiencing the story what's beautiful i think so 
going back to the Tolkien again, uh, Connor, you mentioned Boromir. He's characterized as a virtuous and good man, ultimately, because even though his demise is punctuated by evil, he is repentant in the end, and he, he shows his virtue in the last. So he's characterized as good. But then throughout the story, we also have Smeagol, and Smeagol is this conflicted harem of ideas and thoughts and motivations who we are not always sure what he's going to do or how he's going to behave or what his true desire is except of course we do know the true desire is his temptation but then we look at the real protagonist of the story in frodo and he has a lot of uh, moral folly and decision making that doesn't always reflect virtue so I, what i'm getting at is that I think in good storytelling, we may not know who the heroes and villains are among the moving characters. Yet we do know that there is an ultimate villain, and we know that there's an ultimate hero as well. That's the the beauty of the, I think, the archetype of C.S. Lewis's um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or really all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm. Aslan is steadfast. We don't wonder whether or not he's good. We wonder whether or not he will prevail against the evil. And the evil is the the witch who is characterized entirely by her malicious intent. But the the characters that we are most interested in are neither Aslan nor the witch in general. We're meant as as students of the narrative to be most motivated by the Pevensey children. And we look at Edmund and it's like he is a bad guy. But what makes it a good story is that he's subject to redemption. And despite his failings, the complexity of his character ends up being a virtuous king. And similarly, like you began at the very the top of this episode talking about Eustace. Eustace is very similar. And he is a wretched, horrible kid who complains constantly and is just really horrible until he becomes the very beast that he exemplifies and the goodness of Aslan sheds that from him and and takes away through a painful process that ugliness and he is again redeemed so I think what is beautiful is not just redemption we do look for redemption but like you're saying Faith the the villains are more interesting which is why redemption is so interesting and so compelling it's because we know that we are villains to some extent and in the intricacies of our own character archetype we can recognize those failings as well as those desires for virtue and desires for temptation and the conflict in that whether that's in Edmund Pevensey or Eustace or Smeagol or Frodo or insert character here if it's of a good story background there's usually some sort of internal conflict of whether or not they themselves are going to be the hero and even aragorn to an extent he as he knows that he will always be who he was born as he is the the heir of the numenor he is the heir of the king of gondor heir to the king of gondor and yet he spends an awful lot of time not doing those things and not actualizing that role that he is destined for and i think his removal from that role and his progression towards his kingship of course builds towards the climax that we find in the 
third the third book the return of the king is the climactic moment when he enters into Minas Tirith finally and he takes his role in Gondor and you know that's the climax of the success and the the demise of the villain who is of course Sauron he finally comes to ultimate success and that's what makes it a good story we want to see the real villain be overcome because we want to believe that we are good just like you said mm-hmm. faith we believe that we're good but we know that we're not mm-hmm. so when we find that we can identify with a character that has showed virtue and has ended in a triumphant goodness despite their own failings i think that's what compor- compelling storytelling is and we see that in so many different stories constantly from the earliest stories like i mentioned earlier the epic of gilgamesh is like one of the mm-hmm. earliest stories that's ever been documented and here we have this this hero who just wants to be immortal and along the way he learns that oh i actually have to earn it and i actually have to care and i have to appeal to the gods in a way that shows me to be worthwhile and not just somebody who wants immortality but somebody who wants to serve and to live and to be worthwhile not that gilgamesh is the best uh example of virtue but certainly there's things that compel him as a as a character within the earliest verbal story that we have from antiquity and those things are similar to what we see now yeah i mean i think I think I want to push back a little bit, but I don't I I don't know how much of a pushback this is in the sense that I I I mean, obviously we all love the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I do too, and I've read it to my kid and everything else, but I find Aslan Aslan sort of annoying in that story because I don't think that I mean he represents God, essentially, right? And God doesn't come among us in that way. That doesn't happen. And I think that, so so I think what we're talking, we're talking about different kinds of story. So I'm willing to accept The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all of Narnia as a certain kind of story that is a kind of like morality tale, sort of like wrapped up in a huge kind of beautiful fairy tale-esque narrative, right? Um, and you know, similarly, you know, the kinds of things that you were sort of mentioning, like all these sort of old, like really old stories, like, you know, like Pilgrim's Progress and like all of these things where like, it's very obviously like, I know what you're trying to tell me, you know, like, that's what I feel about like um, Narnia. It's like, I know what you're saying. I get it. I understand what you're saying. I'm also engaged in this story, like the Narnia (laughs) not so much Pilgrim's Progress, but I'm very engaged in in the whole Narnia epic and all this stuff. And as you say, I care much more about, you know, the children than I care about the witch or or whoever, or even Aslan, like, and they're kind of, they're much more human kind of their temptation, whether they're gonna succumb or not, or what's going on with them, because they're human. Aslan is not human and that's the point of him you know is and and so he doesn't behave like a human he behaves like a somebody up here you know because that's his job and I think that's a kind of story that is fine to tell but it's not the same kind of story as 
like the kind of modern stuff that we were sort of trying to talk about before, like Star Wars or, you know, Game of Thrones or any kind of novel that's being written today. You can't write a novel like that today. You just can't do it because everything looks because because it's too it's too twee, like it's too perfect. You know, you can't tell a story like that because people will say, like, this doesn't this isn't realistic. The world's not like that. And I think that's kind of what I was saying before about like it has to reflect the world as it is, even if it's taking place in a kind of fairy tale universe or a or a galaxy far, far away or or whatever. Like it, so I, I feel I always feel a little annoyed with Narnia because of that reason, even though obviously C.S. Lewis is a genius and you know, not knocking him at all, and also not knocking the story because when you just engage with it as what it is. It's a very good. He does a very good job, right? He's he's trying to tell us something. It's a sort of morality universe that we're supposed to enter into and and understand. And when we do that, we get it. I mean, it's the same with a fairy tale, right? Like it's a morality universe. We're supposed to kind of see, like, oh, you know, this represents this, and this represents that. And now I understand about growing up, <laughs> or now I understand don't talk to strangers, <laughs> or whatever it is. You know, I'm supposed to understand that. But I, and I think I just I guess my point is just that I think that's a very different entity than a, a sort of more modern story. Well, it's a specific literary style. And yes. I, I wouldn't, I would disagree that it can't be told presently in the modern time okay. because it, both Chronicles of Narnia as well as Pilgrim's Progress are direct Christian allegory. Yes. They are reflective of the realities that we are taught through scripture from the lens of the author. So yes. The allegory presented by the Chronicles of Narnia may not be absolutely realistic because it is within the limitations of C.S. Lewis's perspective. Uh, I might argue that, literarily speaking, the Screw Tape Letters presents a better quality novel. And, and I don't know if you've read the Screw Tape. Yeah, letters. well, the it's Screw Tape really letter- Letters I feel like exists within the kind of you know it's almost like you know. Plato kind of invents a Socrates like that was not that isn't really Socrates. It's like he invented like this is his version to tell what he's trying to say, right? And it's kind of like the Screw Tape Letters are like a similar idea in that sense, um, in that it's not it's not real, <laughs> you know. Like, but it mm-hmm. it is is he saying he's making an argument, right? As opposed to telling a story. And yeah. I, I think that's a different thing. I think it's a good thing. It's a great mm-hmm. book, you know, like, but I think that, I think that it's a different, a different uh, medium almost. And I agree because allegory is a very specific flavor. And for that yeah. reason, J.R. Tolkien highly criticized the Chronicles of Narnia because, yeah, you know, he, he and Sirius Lewis were, were contemporaries of right. each other and even friends. He was very critical and he said it was garbage and said, <laughs> my stories are not allegory and he was very (laughs) hard pressed on that now some might say it rightly so that there are allegorical comparisons and concepts within the lord of the rings right but that is not the the archetype that he follows and for that reason i think it is a much more accessible form of literature to a much broader audience and we Mm -hmm. see the evidence of that by its success yeah so no i I agree. agree it's a specific style and a specific type yeah yeah, that's all I'm saying, really, is that, like, you know, I think, I guess, again, like, what I what I don't want to do is I don't want to say, and I don't think you guys are saying this, but I, what I don't want to say is, oh, you know, that's that's what we need to get back to. You know, that's what we need. You know, we that 
that's that was the glory days of storytelling. We need to get back to that. And I feel like, no, we need to tell stories within the modern context. We live in the modern world, whether we like it or not. And I don't always love it, but we live in the modern world. We live in the world of Marvel and the world of TikTok and the world of like crazy people doing crazy things. And, you know, that's the world that we need to speak into, even if we're presenting a fantasy world or or whatever, we need to speak into this world in some way, in some capacity, even if we're telling a story that's completely removed from it. Now, I think you'll disagree with me on this. Great. Because you kind of already said it already, but <laughs> I love The Pilgrim's Progress. I think it's one of the better stories ever written. And it, I fully acknowledge it is absolutely allegorical and it's the entire purpose behind the writing. What I love about it it kind of goes both ways. So the problem with the story is that it's written at a time where he is writing in English, but not the English we use. And that is a huge stumbling block for 90% of the audience. Just like reading Shakespeare usually is, but people are less interested in pursuing Shakespeare because it's not as culturally relevant. But John Bunyan's work in A Pilgrim's Progress is... I think if you can get past the linguistic challenges, and there are some editorials that are or edits of the book that have been written to be more approachable in right, like a translation English. almost, yeah. Yeah, but what I love about this allegory is it's so obvious. It is so <laughs> on the nose that mm -hmm. you can't deny the relevance. I can't deny the relevance when I read the story of of Christian and his experience. He has a burden. He needs to get the burden off. He doesn't know how to do that. So he wanders around asking people, hey, greed, how do I get this burden off? And greed responds in a greedy way. Yeah. <laughs> and and then he finds uh, the evangelist and says, how do I get this burden off? And the evangelist says, I know how to get the burden off. You need to go to the kingdom and you need to go to the cross and the sepulcher. And there the king will remove your burden which is like the most beautiful story of just uh, uh, the gospel being shown in this really obvious, almost idiot proof allegory. And because of that, I, I love the way that this whole story, he goes along this journey towards salvation and even after salvation and encounters obstacles along the way and struggles with his own internal medium of of navigating these moral challenges it ultimately is satisfied with salvation at the expense of losing his wife his children his his self-identity he loses his very self as it is sacrificed and plunged into death and brought into new life that to me is such a creative and beautiful way of communicating the gospel that I believe transcends culture to an extent because it's so obviously on the nose and it he doesn't waste time naming characters creatively. Yeah. It's just like, here's envy, here's greed, here's the evangelist, here's all these really, like he names them after what they are and how they function in the story. 
And right. for that I mean, reason, I, I think it's beautiful. I love it. I think it's applicable to us now. It was applicable to people 100 years ago, and it will be applicable in 100 years as well. I well, think I'm not going to yuck your yum, but I feel like, um, but, and, and I'm not going to knock Pilgrim's Progress either, because I feel like it exists as something important in its time. Because mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I think some people, I think, say it's the first sort of English novel, like this is the first sort of novel in English, right? So we, if, if that's true, and even if it's not, it's around that marker, right? So we we can't deny that and and everything everything has a sort of linear traject trajectory right so if that's where it started then that's important and so you know it, that's where we were at the time this is how we were telling our stories at the time and so there's we're not going to knock that right so i i i think it's important in its time i i i the, it's the on the noseness of it that I object to today. Like I, I think that it needed to be like that at the time because I think that people didn't understand stories in that in the same way, or like they didn't not that they didn't understand them, but they didn't experience them in the same way that we experience them now. But I think, you know, you you can't you can't write that story now. You can't. Well, it shouldn't be remade. That's well, sure. it certainly shouldn't be remade, but you and also... the times that they've tried to make it into movies, it's so painful because well, it's not meant to be that way. And yeah, the obviousness I mean, of it is, I think, a little bit unpleasant when it's in a film setting, but that's my... And, and because we, we don't we don't experience stories like that. You, you can't... I mean, people just roll... I mean, they roll your eyes like, oh, his name is, is guilt or, you know, greed or whatever. <laughs> that's his name? Like, come on now. You know, like the you know, when, when things like that happen in stories now, you, you call foul. Like if I'm editing somebody's book and it's that obvious, I'm going to say like, no, I'm sorry. This is not, this is not a story. This, because you might as well just tell me and that that was going to be my question when you were saying that it's like, you know, he, he goes from here to there, to the sepulcher, to this and that. It's like, so why does it need to be a story? Like, isn't that already a story? Like, don't we have the Bible? Like, isn't that already, like, don't we already know that? Like, why do we, why is that a story and not just something that you're, you're saying? Like the way to get from point A to point B is to go through all these different things, you know? I mean, I think, I think that's my issue with it today, not, not viewing it as its own entity in the past, which I think is valid. I, I think my issue with it is like, how do we how do we experience that now except as a work of kind of historical importance so how is that different than what we were saying earlier about the parables of christ where he's telling the same story that was told at sinai through the instructions that were given and he's bringing them to life with more uh well with metaphor and with simile and because and it's with metaphor things. he's not saying like this is well, like yeah. he's not saying like okay, like, this is Mr. Kingdom of Heaven, see him? Like, you know, like he's, he's, he's making, he's making an allegory. It's something completely different. We need that thing. Yeah. You know, that's why, I think. Well, I agree. The teachings of Jesus, I appreciate much more than the teachings of <laughs> yeah, John well, Bunyan. That's right. good. Well done. That's yeah. important. <laughs> Historically, John Bunyan's influence is just, you're right. That also right. educates my appreciation of him. And for those who may not know, John Bunyan was a prisoner to england because of his religiosity 
in the face of a pseudo theocracy because the church of england had assumed moral superiority and because he preached the gospel instead of the church of england he was put in prison and while in prison he wrote the pilgrim's progress and i i'm just so impressed by that there are editions of the pilgrim's progress that i think are so cool where they will have an inline reference of every scriptural reference that's being either directly or implicitly quoted. And it's ridiculous. Like every line of the entire novel is riddled with scripture. So I see it as not an unnecessary replacement for scripture, but a reiteration of that scripture in a creative way. But yeah, sure. And I feel like that's amazing and and people should read it and not forget it, you know, for whatever reason, either because you read it and it really speaks to you. This is the thing. Like, stories speak to us in different ways for different reasons, and they're supposed to. That's what's so cool about them. You know, it's like I write this book and I put it out into the world and then I'm done. You take from it whatever you take from it. And I can't, I cannot influence you. There's nothing I can do. And I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be like calling you on the phone being like, this part is supposed to mean this. Like if I didn't do a good job telling you what I was trying to say, then that's it. (laughs) You know, like, and Dumbledore was actually gay. But <laughs> by the way, <laughs> now that yeah. we're speaking of that, can I just clear? No, I mean, yeah. right. Like you don't get to do that, you know? Yeah. And I think you can't wreck on your story. Yeah, no, you can't. And people, <laughs> people, it's great. People have been coming to me and being like, does this part mean this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like I didn't, mean I didn't that know that, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. is that what it means to you? Great. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. You know? Cause that's the truth. So it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say like, this book is bad. It's not bad. <laughs> you know, some books are just bad, <laughs> but, uh, right, but right. not that that's one. true. <laughs> <You> right. <know? laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of bring our discussion to talk about, um, I'm going to use Charles Dickens um, and uh, a Christmas Carol as, as sort of the example here. So uh, someone in the chat said that, uh, um, that uh, some stories are relatable to continuing generations, and there's a reason why people keep reading it and loving it. So, um, so Faith, obviously, your your book is a retelling of Christmas Carol, and um, of course, it's completely different than the original. But there's obviously some um, elements that have um, overlap. So, first of all, you know, we we talked a little bit about uh, why certain stories should not be. Uh, maybe rewritten or or can't be rewritten, um, yeah. you know, for one reason or another. But something that I've noticed is that there are, uh, we, we currently live in a culture that is constantly drawing from the past. And it's very rare that we see a book in the present have any form of exposure on the on the same uh, kind of level as, as Charles Dickens. So first of all, why do you think that, uh, why do you think that A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens has transcended so many generations. Why do you think it is so relevant today? Why do you think it is a book that we constantly pull from? And it's only one of a handful of Christmas stories that constantly gets brought up every single year at the expense of so many modern uh, Christmas stories. And then why did you decide to do a retelling of of that book if it, if it has transcended so much? Yeah, so... I think this is actually really interesting. I think that a Christmas Carol, Dickens is a Christmas Carol, does what we were just talking about, what I was just talking about. It 
is it is a moral universe. It's a story about a man who has lost his way. And it it has a, it makes a very clear statement. It is not okay to just completely check out from humanity. I mean, that's what Scrooge, so Scrooge is a, a miser and we're supposed to feel like, oh, you know, he's hoarding his money and he should be more charitable and all of these things. And that's true. And, and in the end he is, but that's not really what it's about. The reason that we care about that is because what he's done is he's kind of like checked out from the cycle of life, the cycle of kind of birth and death of sorrow and joy and all of those things. He's kind of, he's, we learn in, in his past that like he's, he's had what we would now modernly call like some traumas, right? He's had some traumas in his life. And this has caused him to kind of say, you know what, this whole being a human being thing is too hard. It hurts too much. It's not, you know, it's not something I want to enter into. So I'm not going to partake in, you know, the the goings on of my fellow man. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to share my wealth. I'm not going to be part of my, you know, my nephew's life. I'm not, I'm not going to do anything that puts me back into the flow of humanity. And he has to learn to re-enter the flow of humanity through, and it happens through this sort of supernatural means, which are these, these spirits. But and, and the story is very, very Christian. It's very obviously a, a Christian kind of allegory or parable, but God's almost never in it. And they they make a couple of mentions. I mean, there's obviously God bless us, everyone, Tiny Tim. And, you know, I think Scrooge goes to church at the end. And there's a couple mentions of like the baby born in a manger and like, you know, that, that kind of thing. But it, nobody ever comes and says, you know, well, Jesus said, or, you know, Go to church, you horrible heathen. You know, no, no one, no one does that. It's it's just a story, but it holds within it the moral universe of, of a Christian worldview and a Christian life. And I think that is what is so appealing about it and what what draws it out of the past into the present. And it's what makes it possible to tell a modern version of it because of what I was just talking about before, which is that we kind of can't tell a story like, like Narnia anymore. You know, that doesn't, it doesn't work for a modern audience to make that kind of story, even though it's beloved and we can go back to it now. So I think it's, it's that piece. It's that it's so subtle and it's so human, but it's so, it's so true. It's, it exists in the sort of moral universe of, of Christianity and and that makes it true in my opinion. And so I think that's kind of what what takes it with us from the past into the present. So the second part of your question it was it's important to me that when you not only did I retell the story in modern times, but I gender swapped it. And I hate gender swapping. <laughs> I hate it because I, because what normally happens today when people do that is they just tell the exact same story and they have the exact same character and he does the exact same things, except now he's a girl. Well, girls and, and they girls, do it better. <laughs> oh, right. Exactly. And it's better and it's great. And they punch people in the face. Um, so, you know, that I have, I have no interest in that none whatsoever and because i think it's it's not realistic it's not true it's not it's not real it's not human and 
So for me, it wasn't so much like, oh, I want to retell this beloved classic Christmas story, but turn the main character into a girl. It was the other way around. It was, I have a story to tell about a woman going through something. And the story arc of A Christmas Carol will work for that. So it's, it's you know, yes, it's a modern retelling. The Scrooge character has been turned into a woman named Carol, whose miserliness, though, is not about money. It's about time, because it's about the time that she's choosing to spend or not spend with her family. I wanted to tell a story about a working mom and what she left behind and whether that matters whether it matters that she's leaving that behind, the time with her family and the time with her husband and all of this stuff. And so it was more that that, that arc of here's a person who's kind of checked out from humanity. Let's go back and see what brought her there. And let's see if we can bring her back into the circle of you know birth and death and sorrow and joy. Let's see if we can bring her back. That's the story of A Christmas Carol, but it's not, it's not the emotional it's a different emotional arc than it is for Scrooge. It's, but it's the same story arc. And so it's a story that, as you say, like it just resonates with a lot of people and it's here. And for, for me, it was initially more the movie because we have a Christmas tradition of watching the Alistair Sim version of the movie, which is the only version as far as I'm concerned um, of this movie every year. And so it's kind of a story that's like imprinted on my heart. Right. So like, I sort of reached for it when I wanted to tell this same story, but I, I certainly was not just kind of trying to like turn all the boys into girls and all the girls into boys. <laughs> you know, that was not my intention at all. Right. Well, we'll fight about the Muppets Christmas Carol later, but uh, we've already done that on yeah. Twitter a little bit. So uh, we have, and I actually, I had a whole reason why I don't like that movie that I literally cannot remember. And I tried to ask my husband, what, what was I saying? And he couldn't remember. So I think I have to just like seed the point. Like I'm sure it's fine. But, but it's not as good as more Alistair. than five. It's excellent. excellent. Okay, I'm sure it's excellent, but not as good as Alistair Sam. I'm gonna like that's the hill I'll die on. It well, agree to disagree. Need to brush up on that one. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah honestly, though, it's been a while for me on that yes. on that very. I like the George well. C. Scott version as well, personally. No, there's a lot of good yeah. versions. It's like fine, but this this is the version. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the ideas that you're trying to challenge culture with within your book then? Okay, so I'm not trying to do anything. <laughs> Let's, I want to start there. This is That's what I was answer. kind of saying before. No, this is what I was saying before. If I had set out to challenge cultural ideas in this book, this book would be garbage. Mm. And too many people try to do that. Too many people say, like, you know, I'm trying to say that the Democrats are evil. So I'm going to write this book where there's this like Democrat guy and he's in charge of a company. And yeah, like that's my story. No, that is a bad story. Write an op-ed, cite many sources. That's what you need to do if you have something that you're trying to say. I am not trying to say anything. I, it didn't come to me as that. It didn't come, the story didn't come to me as a message. It came to me as a story. That's how I knew I could tell it. Because if it came to me as a message, I could just write that down in a sentence and then like disseminate it to people that I wanted to hear that message, you know. Um, and I, I've done that in like 700 words on like different people's websites and stuff, um, you know. So I think, but I, so I'm being slightly facetious. But to answer your question, I think the story certainly has themes. Um, it that it has themes about marriage and about family and about how what it means to have it all 
it does challenge the notion that you can have it all as a as a woman. You can't, you know, that that notion that like you can be a full time mom and a full time, um, uh, you know, have a full time job and be a full time mom. Like you obviously can't do that because you physically can't be in two places at the same time. Uh, and so, you know, it it that's a theme. Can you can you have it all? No. <laughs> um, you know, another theme is is kind of the the narrative that women are sold these days about what makes them valuable and important in society, you know, and it kind of explores that, like, how do you, how do you be valuable? How do you, how do you feel important um, and in your life? And, and, and it kind of looks at the way that, you know, when you, when you stay home with your kids, so like, you know, I, I stay home with my kids, when you stay home with your kids, there's not a whole lot of like positive feedback <laughs> um, about that, you know, when, but when you go to a job, you, and you're doing a good job, you get a lot of, a lot of kind of, of feedback, you know, your, your boss might tell you good job, you might get a raise, you might, um, you know, there might be some kind of like year end review or something or a bonus, you know, you, you feel successful because you're being told you're successful at home that doesn't happen you know so i think it just kind of explores like what it what it's like to be a woman and to have the responsibilities that you have and to be a mom and and it doesn't i hope it doesn't condemn anyone or anything and i hope it doesn't i hope it doesn't sort of say something i hope that you take something away from it you take away what what you need to take away from it and i think that that's that's always my goal. And I think that's what good stories do. They don't, they don't preach at you. So I'm curious. Really like, oh, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to say that I, I love what you said to begin with all this, that you didn't retell the story. You had a story. Yeah. And the, the circumstances of that previously told story fit a type that you could mold into your that's own story. And that, I, going right back to the very beginning of this conversation, that is the entire message of a hero with a thousand faces, right. is that a valuable story, a quality story can take many forms. Exactly. And what you've done is just that. So I commend you for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, my question was just going to be, so obviously, um, I, I understand the intention of, of not wanting to be, uh, you know, heavy handed in a message within a story and not necessarily wanting to start a story with an agenda per se, yeah. but obviously you're, you're a human. So you have your own perspective and that's naturally going to come through mm -hmm. in the text. So, uh, you know, whether or not you wrote the story with an agenda, do you feel as though there are specific ideas that you're hoping people like, uh, I mean, you, you've mentioned themes, but you mentioned that you don't necessarily want people to take certain ideas away. I guess, I guess what kind of impact are you hoping this book will have? An emotional one. Like, I, I hope that, that it makes people feel things. And it, and that's, that's kind of the feedback that I'm getting, which I really appreciate. Like, like I keep joking, like all these men keep telling me that it made them cry, which is like, what? Great. So like, that's amazing. Um, you know, but I, I, I think it's more, it's less that I want you to kind of come away with some idea about, you know, how you should live your life <laughs> or, you know, what you're doing wrong or right or, or whatever. And more that if I've done my job correctly, you 
are going to live inside of a world for however long it takes you to read the book. You're going to meet people in that world and you're going to experience alongside them the plot points that I illuminate for you. And that is going to create an emotional response in you. And it might be different for different people. Like some people are saying, you know, I, I see myself in Carol and I worry about that, right? So some people are having the experience of like, oh gosh, like am I, am I working too hard? Am I neglecting my family? Am I, you know, what, what does that mean? And, and I don't have an answer for them because I don't know you. I don't know what you're doing, you know, like I'm not your mom, you figure it out. But, I, you know, and, and some people are like, oh, wow, like I just I just loved sitting there watching Carol and her husband Bo fall in love. I fell in love with Bo and that made me feel good. And I, you know, that like I know this kind of it, it may feel like a cop out answer, but I think this is really, really important that because I think today we're looking all the time for that kind of like thing that we can argue about on Twitter, <laughs> you know, like I think we're looking all the time for like, well, you said, you know, this thing and now I'm going to yell at you. And it's like, okay, fine. But what I would prefer is that it just, it made you feel a way because when you feel a way, then maybe you think about stuff, you know, you, you think about your life. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't, I really don't have a, a thing that I want you to feel or think. I, I, there are certain scenes in the story where it's like, okay, this is supposed to be sad, you know, or this is supposed to be happy or scary or whatever. But at no point do I hope that there isn't a point in the book that I can say, well, this is the place where I hope that you, you know, rethink your life as a working mom. Or this is the place in the book where I, I hope that you, um, you know, remember to go kiss your husband. You know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing like that. So really what I want, what I hope when I write fiction is that you will feel something, that you will feel like you lived in that world with those people and you experienced your emotions, how they would experience their emotions for some period of time and that that affected you in some way. That's it. Do you think that that cultivates emotional intelligence as well? I mean, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, I think that it's a weird thing to have invented people and then that then people interact with, you know, like, like here are these people that just don't exist. And, and yet you can relate to them as people and you can, you can watch them relate to each other as people. If I've done a good job, if I haven't, then there wouldn't. And, who cares, you know, but, and so I think, yeah, in some ways it's kind of like you, you're being allowed to witness this thing happening without really having to be involved, you know, and really having to kind of uh, evaluate yourself or, or do anything, you know, you, you just get to kind of experience it unfold. But as we were saying before, as you we were saying before, like, as opposed to a movie, which you you do kind of, you know, you empathize with the characters and you feel things and you cry and whatever, but in a book, it's almost like you're there. If it's done well, it's like you're there, you know? It's like you forgot that you're sitting there with the book in your hands and you are that character or you're watching it unfold. And I think that there's real value to that. 
Yeah. I think, I think, you know, an author's goal should be, of course, to uh, highlight the, the good, the true and the beautiful. And, and so I think, um, I think what you're alluding to is a, is a form of escapism. And obviously like there's, there's healthy versions of that and there's unhealthy versions of that. So, so, um, you know, what, what kind of things would you say the good, true and the beautiful that, that are throughout your book? Gosh, I'm trying to decide if I agree with you. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like, because kind of what we were talking about before, like, yes, you want that, but there's other things in the world than that too. I mean, I mean, can you, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean when you say that this, that a story should sort of advance the good, true and the beautiful? I think for example, um, there are books, I can't remember where I got this term from, but uh, my wife and I have talked about this when we, when we vet certain books for our children to read. We try to get rid of books that we call babbles. They're just books that are just, they're, they're nothing. They don't say anything meaningful. They don't actually have any substance to them. Uh, you know, it's see, spot, run, spot, run fast. Oh, you know, sure. unless yeah. you're using a book like that to specifically teach, you know, your child how to read. Right. You know, there's really no purpose to that book. Yes, um, for sure. and, and some of these books that we've even ran into are just like, uh, you know, a book that it seems like someone probably picked up from a gas station or something. Cause you know, <laughs> it, it's like the writing is awful. The grammar is awful. Yes, there's no yeah. point to the story. It's literally just filler meant to just like, maybe, maybe just, uh, satisfy your kid for a short while so you can get something done. But ultimately <laughs> it, it teaches them nothing. So that's, yeah. that's more of what I mean of, uh, you know, there should be some form of substance to, Okay. Uh, do a person's writing, and and to me that would that would lean towards naturally the the good, true, and the beautiful. Because okay. I mean, I mean, how could I even define what book is a babble if I don't have some some idea of what is good, what is true, what is beautiful in both a story and without a story? Okay, yeah. So I think that that makes total sense. But I think my answer to this is, I mean, it's a little tricky to talk about because, like. I hope that I did a good job, but I don't know if I did. And so I don't, you know, it's again, it's sort of more like, well, did you find that in it? Like, do people, do people find that in it? But for, so for me, I think it's kind of what I was talking about before with the Scrooge story. This is a story about, it's essentially like the, the Dickens, cause I'm not going to say this about myself. The Dickens is essentially a story about what it means to be human and what it means to be human is that you have to experience sorrow along with your joy. And Scrooge is a character who cannot abide that. He cannot abide that there, that, that there is sorrow, you know, like his, his sister, his sister dies essentially. And that's kind of like a pivotal moment. And then, you know, his, his girlfriend like leaves him and that's another moment. And he gets really kind of wrapped up in, you know, in money and all of this stuff. But, but not, I mean, initially he's kind of like, oh, well, this is progress and I'm excited and, you know, things are moving forward, et cetera. So it's a story about someone who can't, can't live with the fact that in order to experience life, in order to have life in abundance, right, we need to have sorrow along with our joy. And so he checks out. And it's about what it takes to check back in. And what it takes to check back in is to acknowledge that there is sorrow and death and, you know, and that all of that exists and you can't have the joy without that. 
And so that's kind of what my story is trying to be about too. It's about how you, you, sure, you can, you know, you can say all of this stuff is too much. So I'm just going to kind of pour my life into work or, you know, into, you know, making enough money so my kids can go to school or whatever. And, and then I can feel successful and powerful, but you're missing it. You're missing the importance of life. You're missing the joy and the joy comes with sorrow. There's birth and there's death, there's joy and there's pain, and it's all part of life. And so that's kind of, I think, what the core of the story is. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think for me, like uh, the reason why I, I clarify this is because, you know, when you were initially saying that you that you had no intentions with your story and then that you that you kind of want people to just take from it what they will. That just made me think of a very postmodern way of it made me think postmodernism. And I, I assume that you don't subscribe to that way of thinking. Right. That isn't what I mean. And, yeah. Right. And so I just wanted to clarify that because, you know, it's like uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, abolition of man to use Lewis again. You know, what makes a, a waterfall beautiful? You know, I mean, I mean, to one guy, you know, why is it that so that essentially there are just some agreed upon truths of uh, you can look at a waterfall and say that it is beautiful. And and really, I, I think the people that say, well, to you, it might be beautiful, but but right. you know, to someone else, it might not be. I think those people are being dishonest because I do think right. that there are some agreed upon truths. And no. that's what I wanted to kind of clarify. Yes, thank you for clarifying that because, yeah, I don't mean it in the postmodern sense and I, I totally know what you're talking about. What I mean is that, and I think this is why I keep saying like if I've done my job, you know, because what I mean is that it is a story <laughs> and there are certain things that would be insane to say about it, right? Like it would be insane to be like, you know, like, oh, you know, Carol should stay the way she is at the beginning. That would be good, right? That would be, that's not good. And, and obviously the story, the arc of the story is leading her back to her family, back to her kids and her husband and all of this. And, and obviously that's where we want her to get to. And anybody who says that, no, then they're crazy. Or like, you know, at one point there's a, a woman that is kind of trying to steal Carol's husband away from her. And like, no one in their right mind would be like, well, he should just leave and go with her. Like, you know, like, you know, the, the, there's, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that within the context of the story, you might relate to certain things and someone else might relate to other things. And that's not my job to tell you what to relate to. It's not my job to tell you which parts speak to you. Like whatever speaks to you speaks to you within the context of the narrative, which does exist, <laughs> you know, which, gotcha. which is there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate the explanation of that. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, we need more good stories. If, if nothing else, we are a culture that is thirsty for good work. So um, obviously you put a lot of effort into it. I see it on the shelf behind you. So um, yeah, feel free to, to put it closer to the camera if you want, um, okay. if look it'll, everywhere. if it'll pick it up, but uh, uh, yeah, well, what, look, it's really cool. It has like red pages. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yes, here it is, Christmas Carol. And yeah, the pages are, the edges of the pages are dyed red. It's really cool. Um, so awesome. there it is. Perfect. Available. Well, where, where, uh, what's the best place for people to pick it up? Because obviously I know Amazon's probably covering it, um, but is that the preferred place that you want people to go to to purchase the book? Yeah, I would say either Amazon or directly through the Daily Wire website. You can do that too. It's it's available pretty much 
wherever you buy your books online. Like if you, you know, if you search it on Target or somewhere, like it's there. Um, but Amazon is good and Daily Wire is those are the two good places to get it. Thank you. Awesome. Perfect. And if people get it now, are they able to get it before Christmas or do you even yes. know? Well, particularly, yeah, I, I haven't checked Daily Wire, but I assume yes, definitely on Amazon. And also if people want it signed, I can't sign your physical book, but I am signing book plates. Um, so people can go to my website and, and get that. Like if you want it for a gift and you want to give someone like a signed book, which makes it nicer, um, I'm doing that now. So yeah. Awesome. Well, cool. where can people find you if they want to keep up with you and everything that you're doing? Thank you. Um, so my website is faithkmore.com and that's where you can contact me about the book plate, but it's also where you can just sort of find everything about me and join my mailing list and all of that and find editing stuff if that's something that you're interested in. Although I will say I'm sort of booked through August of next year, which is crazy. Um, but so there's that. And then I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it now at Faith K Moore also. And that's another good place to find me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Faith. We really appreciate the, the back and forth. It was a lot of fun challenging one another as well as just uh, having good discussions on the importance of storytelling. And uh, hopefully this, uh, this uh, podcast episode will inspire someone else to finally finally start writing that book that's been in their head for uh, for far too long. So we really appreciate you stopping by. Michael, where can people find you to keep up with you? You'll find me desperately learning Hebrew paradigms to finish the finals of this semester. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, glad to have you back, Michael. We missed you. But uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, feel free to follow us on Twix, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. Uh, at Forge and A. We really appreciate your support and following us. It really does help us out, and we will plan on seeing you next time.